It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Rosanna Lockwood here on Uncensored Tonight. Now, it's one of the most defining and divisive issues of our time, the migrant crisis. How do countries safely solve this issue, stop boats and convoys, and help liberate those at the mercy of human traffickers? We'll be debating that. And fighting for women's rights in sport, I'll be joined by Canadian powerlifter April Hutchinson, who was threatened with suspension for speaking out against trans women competing in her sport. She's going to be joining us live. And he's back for round two on Uncensored. Jeremy Corbell, investigative journalist and podcast host, is going to join me to talk about why we should all take this potential threat from UFOs more seriously. Live from the news building in London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored with Rosanna Lockwood. Good evening and welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored with me, Rosanna Lockwood, back in the chair for another week. Piers still on holiday. Now, migrants, the failure to stop illegal migration to the UK, that really is the story of the moment because this government's much shouted about stop the boats agenda is a massive, massive failure. Their supposed small boats week, which was last week, saw the first migrants boarding the Bibby Stockholm barge just off the coast of Dorset before they had to rapidly disembark it following a Legionella outbreak. At least six more people died in the channel over the weekend. And now hearing ever more frenzied cries from some quarters to simply turn the boats back. And look, that's not a fix, is it? Remember, this was one of the Prime Minister's five pledges, Rishi Sunak promising everyone that he would get control of the borders. What I hear when someone says, well, you know, someone comes here and claims asylum illegally, they've come here illegally and they claim an asylum, I hear that and say, that's wrong. Right? When I hear that someone has paid thousands of pounds to come here and exploit our world-leading modern slavery laws, that's wrong. We have to fix all those things. The system that we need, the system that I want to introduce, is one whereby if you come here illegally, you should be swiftly detained, and then in a matter of days or weeks, we will hear your claim, not months and years, and then we will safely remove you somewhere else. And if we do that, that's how we'll break the cycle. Rishi Sunak speaking to our very own Piers Morgan there. And this idea, and it's not Piers' words, but it's words from other parts of the media at the moment about just turn the boats back when they're halfway across the channel. Why can't we do that? It's not a fix because that would be like painting over a crack in a wall rather than dealing with the crumbling foundations that led to it. And let me be clear what I'm saying here. The crumbling foundations are not the desperate humans risking their lives to get here. The crumbling foundation is the almost criminal inadequacy of this government's failure to ensure an asylum processing system 
that provide safe, tested and legal routes for arrivals. And then you get this breeding ground for actual criminal gangs to exploit people into making the journey here. Now, the two principal smuggling routes for migrants trying to reach the UK are from Syria into Turkey and from East, North and West Africa to Europe. Asylum seekers are then reportedly paying as little as £500 for a spot on a small boat to make the dangerous journey across the Channel from northern France to the coast in Kent. The UN estimates the global network of illegal migration generates a minimum of $6.75 billion a year for criminals. According to those estimates that they found, there is no single way people smuggling is done. It's myriad, but it often involves violence, threats, falsified ID documents, dangerous uses of lorries and boats for transit of people. In order to stop these criminals, we need action at every single stage of the journey that they take from the source country to the destination, and we obviously cannot do it alone. The saying goes, no man is an island. Well, technically, this country, the UK, is a big island or a series of islands, but we cannot be entirely self-sufficient in this. It's a mistake to think we can just by strengthening our borders, like with some sort of medieval castle that can pull up a drawbridge. Nor is it France's problem, just because they're our closest neighbour and the last point before many illegal migrants reach the UK. It is every single country and every authority at all parts of the journey, and that is going to take some serious grown-up international coordination. Last week, amid all this Bibby Stockholm nonsense, the government actually announced a deal with Turkey to set up a joint force centre there to disrupt and dismantle some of these horrendous people smuggling gangs. Now, if that is done right, I'd say that's far more important and useful than a big horrible barge off the coast of Dorset, which is nothing but a massive totem of failure and last resort. On tonight's show, we're going to understand a bit more about these criminal gangs, how they operate, how much they make, and what they do to people, and how they might be stopped. Joining me to discuss all of this is Dr. Andy Hodjoy, an expert in EU law and migration at University College London. Also joining us here in the studio, socialist and author Grace Blakely. And we're also joined down the line by author and podcast host, Constantin Kitchen. Constantin, thank you. I'll start with you, seeing as you're, seeing as you're there. You were just listening uh, to my opener to the show there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's fair, that the government's just got its focus in the wrong direction here? I think what we should be doing is uh, working with countries like Turkey, Egypt, etc., to create refugee camps in those countries near the conflict zones and then uh, process the people there. But I'm afraid even when we do that and we even when we do create legal and safe routes, as you say, what will happen is some people will still try to get into this country illegally. So we are going to have to, you said we shouldn't think about strengthening our borders. I actually think we should. We should provide safe and legal means for people to apply. But there will still be people who want to come here uh, by breaking the rules, and that should not be tolerated. Yeah, I'd like to be clear on that. So strengthening the borders, I do mean asylum processing. I do mean uh, regarding each and every application thoroughly. I call that strengthening the borders, not necessarily military troops and things like that, which are sometimes suggested. I mean... But the question you have to answer then, Rosanna, is once we have those safe and legal routes in place, what are you going to do with people who try to get in illegally when they will do? I'm afraid at the end of the day, we are going to have to find some way of preventing people from getting into this country. He mentioned we're an island. It actually shouldn't be as hard as it now seems. Let's cross to some of our guests in the studio. Dr. Andy, uh, joining us, because you would uh, deal in very legal aspects of this. You deal with migration on a very real basis. Give us a sense of the criminal gang element to this, how serious it is. It's quite serious because organised crime has arranged many of these trips. They mm -hmm. still have a very strong foothold in France and across 
the wider region, which you were calling in Turkey, as well as the Western Balkan routes, and they're the one behind who actually organized the trips. Uh, what we saw from last year's crossing, as well as this year's crossing, we could see how they advertise the routes, mm. actually in different uh, languages, and they use all sort of social media networks and even in some local TV channels in different parts of the world where they are sort of advertising uh, the routes. So they are fairly sophisticated uh, in terms of how they organize uh, the trip and how they promote their criminal activities. Now, the UK government has tried last year uh, a little bit. This year, it seems to be a bit more prepared at the start of the summer season because what we saw from last year, usually during the summer, it's where the numbers uh, rise up and we can see exactly the same uh, this year. But it seems that still we are in ill-sufficient and ill-prepared. And that would require a lot of collaboration with many countries across uh, Europe because what we can see the route starts from Turkey up to France and they arrive here. So there's a number of countries that we can uh, deal better mm. and we can collaborate them. But also the countries where they come from. I mean, that's also the, the big question, right? That's so, a I mean, it's a huge uh, international task requiring a hell of a lot of collaboration. Do you think this government's got it in them? Well, at the moment, they seem to be playing catch-up and they're merely reactive to a specific situation rather than preparing. One would think that this year they would be far more prepared than they were last year, but it seems that they did not learn from some of those uh, mistakes. Now, we can see around Europe, even the European Union is having a discussion in terms of how it should uh, allocate migrants, and they tried before the summer to make a new deal in terms of how they are going to allocate, and they still cannot fully accept or agree what would be the correct number, right? Mm. So that does also put a challenge in terms of for us. But the question per se or in the debate, are we talking here about migrant as a numbers that they are coming here or are we talking about migrants with problems? That has to be clearly defined. Because mm. if we're talking about numbers, it's not per se the numbers, but what sort of skill set do these migrants have? What sort of integration programs we can provide for them? Because if they come with low skills uh, mm. background, it would be really difficult to, to integrate them into our society. And that's something that the UK should not very much look forward to, mm. right? So this really requires a lot of global efforts mm. and a proper study should be conducted. But so far, we've seen that we are playing catch up along the way. It feels catch-up. It feels reactionary. Like you said, it's not just about a numbers game. Humans are invariably incredibly different and can offer different things to a country and come from different backgrounds, have different stories about why they came here. Grace, um, in terms of the numbers, the government is out of control on this. The numbers have been rising rapidly over the last few years in terms of the number of, of illegal migrants that are making their way to the UK. Can you understand why this is becoming such a huge political issue? OK, I think we really need to kind of take a step back and look at the situation a bit more objectively because the framing is always there's a migrant crisis, there's hordes of people coming over. Let's just bear in mind that the vast majority of refugees around the world are in the global south. They're in poor countries. They're largely in countries around conflict zones and around places where you've had 
these processes of long-term social decay, of war, of extreme poverty, and also now of climate breakdown. You know, these people are being forced out of one place and, and pushed into another. Now, some of those people are then able to make the long and dangerous route, a route which they ultimately think is going to be worth it, a route for which they save a long, long time, a route for which they often risk their lives to get out of what are often horrendous conditions in refugee camps in some of the poor parts of the world. They make their way painstakingly through all these different places, get around all these barriers to try and get to the UK. And the idea that somehow we would solve this problem by, as you say, kind of constructing a castle or like putting a fort around our country or doing like literally like building a wall around England is utterly absurd, isn't it? You know, it's the same with any of these questions around uh, crime and prevention and illegality. Mm. If you just focus on enforcement, and you don't think about what's driving the issue, if you don't think about what's driving people to try to come to this country, risking their lives to do so, paying mm -hmm. lots of money to do so, and if you don't organise ways for that process to be handled mm -hmm. cooperatively with the you know, UK working with governments around the world, then nothing's going to change. Let's bring in Constantin on this. He's been listening in carefully uh, to those comments made by Grace uh, Constantin, because I would argue, and Grace, I will get, give you an opportunity to come back as well, that you've got to do both at the same time. Look at the source issue that causes migration, people to leave mm. their own countries, but also uh, deal with the issue that is very upfront, which is everyday thousands of people sometimes arriving. Yes, well, we have to deal with both. I'm glad, by the way, that Grace made the distinction between refugees and migrants. I'm increasingly uncomfortable as we talk about these people as migrants. Uh, these, uh, Some of these people are refugees. Many of these people are simply illegal immigrants. And as someone who followed the immigration system of this country to come here many years ago, I'm increasingly frustrated that we're conflating people who are breaking the law of this land to get here uh, with everybody else who follows the process as they should. Uh, so that's the first point I made. The second point, I think you're right. We have to provide some method for people to apply in areas that already are places like Turkey, like Egypt, etc. But then we have to recognize that not everybody who's attempting to get into Britain is actually a refugee. I mean, we've seen a huge influx of Albanians, for example. Albania is not a war-torn country. Albania is not a country that's uh, it's a source of refugees, particularly. So there is different types of immigrants who are attempting to come here, different types of people. And we have to find them where they are. They can apply. And then we have to actually hear their claim. And not everybody is going to meet the conditions for refugee status. And we have to recognize that, yes, of course, we've got to be able to help people. But on the other hand, not everybody who's attempting to get in is actually going to qualify, which is one of the reasons that they're doing it illegally. If you think about when we talk about safe and legal routes all the time. One of the things that people don't seem to say is there are plenty of safe and legal routes. You could simply go to a visa center or, and apply to get in here like any other immigrant. The reason people are doing this is many of them will not qualify and we are going to have to reckon with that as well. It is, it is a reckoning. Look, I want to come to Dr. Andy in the studio because he's done a lot of work uh, regarding Albania and I think it's important that Constantin and Grace have brought up the point of distinction but there between asylum seekers, refugees, migrants, illegal migrants, etc. When it comes to Albania, um, it is a country that has been in the press a lot because of the amount of Albanian uh, migrants, legal, illegal or otherwise, have ended up here. And the government has tried to, the UK government, to find a strategy to deter. Um, how successful has that been with regard to Albania? So we have to sort of distinction. I'm glad that we made the distinction between uh, mm. refugee migrants, but as well as those who have been trafficked in, in this country. Mm. When it comes to the case of Albania, uh, the UK government in Albania did acknowledge that there was an issue around uh, illegal migration, and they made an agreement. 
And what we found out, actually, the two countries didn't really have a lot of uh, relation when it comes to specific issues such as migration. Both were member of NATO's, but we didn't see many collaboration. The moment that we saw both governments sat together and actually acknowledged that some of these issues could have been tackled together, we can see the numbers this year have reduced dramatically. So if we compare the numbers this year to last year, there's a decrease mm. on the number. And that is because there was an acknowledgement. Mm. However, I can see the word being thrown around, well, what we did with Albania, let's do it with other countries. But we have to cut through a little bit on this. Do we think that we can make a deal with Afghanistan, mm. how we did with Albania? Mm. Because the Taliban's are in charge, right? And so far, no one is sitting with them, right? Mm. We see with Syria and other countries as well. You just put, put the number of how many different nationalities have arrived this year, and many of them are countries that the UK doesn't have a very good or friendly relation like they did with Albania. Yeah. With Albania, it was very different, and it was possible to achieve it because both countries are NATO members. Right. And there were many... Um, already, the sort of political framework was already in place was just about putting a mm. bit more effort. Mm -hmm. uh, Grace, um, I did promise to come back to you. We are shortly running out of time. But on that point of going to source, as you were mm. saying, when Dr. Andy brought up the Afga Afghanistan yeah. example there, the six uh, migrants that died in the channel over the weekend were from Afghanistan. Yeah. Obviously, the chaotic withdrawal of US forces from Kabul, the Taliban taking over a few years ago, these are not quick fixes to an issue. I think it's really important that we remember that it's not as easy for many people as just, you know, showing up at a, a, an office of a government and then, you know, applying for, for a legal route to get to uh, the UK or to Europe. Because a lot of these migrants are from places where there is literally the absence of a state or a failed state or a crumbling state or a mm. state that's in conflict or a pariah state or, you know, a state which would simply not allow them to kind of even begin to, to start making that journey. So the distinction shouldn't just be illegality or illegality. It shouldn't just be how did they come into the country? Was it on a boat or was it on a train? It kind of doesn't make sense to categorise people in that way, does it? It should be where have they come from? You know, what is their need? Um, and how can we work to actually integrate those people into our society? Um, and, yeah, you know, like, use their skills and the resources that these people have for the UK, because we need people to work in the NHS. We need people to do jobs uh, for which we currently have large amounts of vacancies. So why not actually create those routes for people to come into this country, either because they are in need and they're fleeing conflict, they're fleeing war, or because they have the skills that we need uh, to, you know, in the NHS, or potentially both? Immigrants is basic economics. You need immigrants to prop up most countries and economies. It's been an interesting discussion. Grace, Dr Andy and Constantin, thanks, all three of you. Uncensored next tonight, I'm going to be speaking to Team Canada's female powerlifter, April Hutchinson, about the stand she's taking in her sport against men identifying as women. Welcome back to Uncensored with me, Rosanna Lockwood. Now, in March, the US powerlifting governing body ruled they would allow trans women to compete in female competitions. North of the border in Canada, the rules, however, seem to be very relaxed, with reports that athletes can compete under whatever gender they feel like on any given day, apparently with no proof needed other than self-identification. Now, April Hutchinson is a competitive powerlifter. She's now speaking up claiming it's unfair to biological women, and she's even been threatened with a ban from her sport for expressing her views. 
She says Anne Andrus, a trans woman, currently holds the highest deadlift of all time in Canada and just announced she will attempt to go to the World Championship. So, should we embrace inclusivity in sports? Or are women failing to be protected in sports? April Hutchinson joins us now to talk through this. April, uh, thank you very much for making time to speak to us. I know you're a very busy woman. You've actually just been competing in Grand Cayman. I hope that went well for you. Um, just talk to us a little bit for an international audience. Give us a sense of what you're campaigning about. Yeah, so actually, um, I've been a powerlifter with the Canadian uh, Powerlifting Union for about four years now. Over the last year, I have been basically, I guess, fighting my federation um, to ban, uh, I guess, trans women, um, also known as men, to be competing with women in, in powerlifting. They have basically ignored my pleas, as well as many other women who don't agree with it. And they've actually even uh, threatened to suspend me for speaking up about the matter. Um, I don't know if you saw my speech a couple of weeks ago. I was in the USA, and I basically told a very heartfelt speech about, you know, the discriminate or the, basically them, them threatening me to suspend me off of Team Canada. Um, I just competed last week with Team Canada. I was allowed to go, but the the threats keep coming, and um, you know, disciplinary action for speaking up has been ongoing for the last year. Do you think this is a specific difference between the US and Canada or other countries in Canada? Is Canada particularly inclusive when it comes to this? Yeah, that's the thing is, um, Canada, I mean, I'm not going to use the expression woke, but I mean, we have a prime minister here, Justin Trudeau, who actually on International Women's Day tweeted that trans women are women. So there's our leadership of the country. Um, but no, Canada is very... Um, I guess very lenient with with policies like you mentioned our policy basically you do not need any proof my boyfriend could basically walk in tomorrow identify as a female compete and then the next day you know go back to being a man again no proof no id required just basically going on how you feel that day or whatever gender you want to identify as. Yeah, mind our viewers, just a few months ago, a uh, powerlifting coach, Avi Silverberg, actually did this, uh, went into a competition, I think, in Canada and basically competed as a man and smashed it. Here he is. And he didn't say, I'm a woman, or maybe he did just to get past the, uh, the regulations, but did it in order to prove your point, really, April, didn't he, that um, a man can just walk into a competition and just trounce, trounce everyone there. But let's make a distinction here with Anne Andrews, who we, we talked about in the introduction to you. That's somebody you know personally, and that is, seems to be a source of uh, a lot of angst here. This is Anne Andrews competing, uh, a trans woman, or as you, you, you call her, a trans-identifying person, uh, previously born a biological male, transitioned a long time ago, but post-puberty, and I believe that's correct, and uh, is uh, taking on a lot of records. Um, talk to us about what that's been like for you. Yeah, so Anne actually just broke the, the national records for all the master records yesterday while competing at the Western Regions. He also holds the second highest deadlift in uh, our powerlifting federation of all time, of all ages. We're talking 20 and up. Um, he just turned 40, so he is a 40-year-old, 6-foot, 250-pound man. And, you know, it's it's been very disheartening. Um, for example, that national record that he broke, athletes have been chasing that for years. And we're, talk, we're talking top athletes who have been training and training and training. 
Um, you know, so it just goes to show the advantages, the physical, physiological advantages that a male has over a female, whether it's muscle mass or bone density, lung capacity, you know, I could go on, but um, it's been very disheartening. Uh, a lot of women actually yesterday dropped out of the competition because they knew that Anne would be lifting. So they dropped, they quit, they wrote to the Federation, and the Federation basically did nothing about it. I can understand the enormous frustration, to be quite frank, because when it comes to sports and it's all about the, the physicality of what you're doing, and to put it simply, it's just it, it, it must be terribly frustrating, especially in powerlifting, which is so much to do with strength. And like, why do you think powerlifting is behaving differently here? You're talking about your federation compared to other sports when it comes to things like swimming and athletics, where internationally we have seen different policy moves. You know what, Rosanna, it's it's mind-boggling. We ask ourselves that every day because I was talking to a couple of the doctors, the chief medical doctors uh, with the International Powerlifting Federation, who right now are actually working so hard around the clock to try to have the policy changed. You have, you said it, powerlifting is a strength-based sport. There's a 60% advantage in powerlifting alone between men and female. Um, you know, we've seen US, UCI cycling has changed. Just recently, the International Weightlifting Federation has now created a separate category for transgender. And that's with the, the Olympic lifting, right? That's a little different than powerlifting, but still a strength sport. Uh, World Athletics, Swim Canada, every federation has even gotten rid of the uh, testosterone monitoring. That's That's been kind of like, as a term, an outdated policy right now. So. I just, I don't get why powerlifting, especially my federation, why they are not, uh, you know, they must be afraid probably to get sued, possibly. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. I, I ask myself that question every day. April, um, just before we let you go, what, what do you hope to achieve? Uh, what would you like to see happen within the next few months? Well, you know what, my main goal, you know, even if I wasn't powerlifting, I, my main goal is to have fairness for women in sports around the world globally. Canada is probably on the top of the list because we have no policy. We actually have a trans inclusion policy. We have no policy at all to protect women and girls in sports. So, I mean, if I, if I put powerlifting to the back door tomorrow and I didn't powerlift ever again, so be it. But I will keep being vocal and I will keep speaking out about fairness because we know women deserve that. It's completely unfair. It's bodies that play sports, not identities. Remember, it's bodies and biology, not identities that play sports. Uh, April, I think it would be uh, tremendously sad if you found yourself withdrawing from the sport, but we really appreciate you sharing uh, your views and your experience this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, let's cross to the studio. Jill joined by Grace Blakely, also Talk TV contributor Esther Cracker, who are both listening into that. And look, I know we've all potentially got very different positions on this, uh, but we are all women. Uh, my position is that, you know, obviously I'm pretty sympathetic to trans rights and I feel they're a marginalised and oppressed group mostly. But when it comes to sport, it's a little more complicated because of the physicality of it, Grace. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I think, you know, this quite obviously, this has become a culture war issue, right? Yeah. So it's like you're either on one extreme or the other, you're either for trans women being able to compete in sports or you're against it. Um, and actually, this is very clearly something that needs to be decided by sporting bodies on a case-by-case -case basis 
and also on a literally on a case by case basis. So you need to be looking at the athlete in question, looking at whether or not there is one person dominating a sport, and then it just becomes not entertaining to watch. So you need to think about how you're doing the rules there. Um, and it's not just trans people; it's also intersex people. Mm -hmm. I remember we had the South African runner who was barred from competing exactly on the basis that she had high testosterone levels. So clearly, we're at this point now where because. Often, because um, you know competitive sports like this have grown so much and they've become so much more popular, there's a range of different people competing, that the rules mm. which gave rise to the separation of men and women's sports are being reconsidered. And do we need to now think of something like, you know, we're testing athletes based on um, maybe, you know, le like hormone levels, testosterone levels, along with other metrics of how their body performs under stress, along with thinking about, you know, if they're trans, did they transition pre or post teenagerhood? Like all of these things need to be decided very specifically, not just this culture war, you mm. know, battle. I mean, the lady said something which is, I think is probably the, the pinnacle of this debate, which is biology over identity. On the issue of intersex people, yes, I do think it should be a case-by-case -case basis. And people born with, you know, chrom um, chromosomal disorders and all of that. That's that's fine. That's biology, right? But on the issue of, of, of transgenderism, that's an identity issue, right? It's also the, a biology issue. Well, it, it's not a biology we issue. We alter it's, it's our a, biologies a, all the time. But no, but the thing is... We take the pill, they, we alter they, our they, biologies. They are not, uh, fundamentally, they're not ch altering every single cell in their body, which is every single cell in your body is a marker of what your sex is. So that's completely different. On the issue of intersex, I don't think you can, I, you know, conflate that with transgenderism because you can't choose to be intersex. Mm -hmm. You can choose to be transgender. Well, I mean, people would argue that you no, can't, but, but I think- Regardless, but that, that, is, that is the bottom line. I think obviously, and I, I know we all, agree, we, get, we all agree that at some point in the weeks or weeks or months that we do this job, we will talk about trans issues and we're just like, oh, why again? Mm -hmm. Because, we haven't simplified what the rules should be. And mm. this is the thing, we're not, most people don't disagree. I've always said there should be a trans category for most sports, not because I'm going to be sitting at the front row watching, but because this will just, this will solve the whole debate. They get representation, they get to compete. There is no you know, issue of how female athletes feel or male athletes or any of this. There's none of this confusion and they get to compete and they get to feel represented. I don't know why we're not championing that more championing that more, that would solve this whole problem. But really, if we keep going down to, oh, but it's not my fault, I'm trans or whatever. Look, you have your own league, case closed. I mean, let's, let's talk about the economy or taxes. <laughs> you know, I'll always talk about the economy. Love my numbers, me. Uh, both of you, thank you very much for giving your insight and uh, opinion on that story. Uh, yes, we do cover this issue a lot, but I think it was very interesting to hear Bill Hutchinson's experience uh, this evening. Uncensored next tonight, investigative journalist Jeremy Corbell will be live and uncensored. We're going to be talking UFOs and how seriously we should be taking any potential threat that's coming up next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
Welcome back to Uncensored. Now to UFOs and revisiting this topic, in fact, because this time last week we invited two experts on to talk about the recent congressional hearing in the US, which included testimony from a former intelligence official who claimed the US has possession of intact and partially intact alien vehicles. I actually asked to do this topic while covering the seat for peers because I find it really interesting. And last week's interview didn't go as planned. Sometimes in live televisions, that happens. We ran short of time to get to ask the questions I wanted. We got some feedback from the community that follows uh, the guests that we invited on that they weren't appreciative of the way we handled it. So we decided to invite the investigative journalist and co-host of the Weaponized podcast, Jeremy Corbell, back onto this show joins us now. Jeremy, welcome back. And just uh, give me a sense of exactly where you think the interview didn't go the way that was hoped last time. Yeah, Rosanna, I, I really appreciate you. I've heard that, that you are smart and that you listen to the public and that you are trying to report the news. So let's reframe this conversation. I think that you have been unfairly attacked on social media due to our last discussion. You know, I am mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. If you remember that movie. I remember you know, it very well, Jeremy. Network. Kid. Yeah. <laughs> Quest questions are, are, are weapons. And so that's why I'm back on. But let's talk about why I'm back on. Last mm. time, it was like a Twilight Zone movie mixed with like The Wizard of Oz. It is like that film, Don't Look Up. I was sitting mm. there thinking, what are they doing saying tinfoil hat? What are they doing playing the X-Files music? We are so far past that. But this is a battle for information right now. And I said, you know, so put on your battle helmet. So let's mm. talk about that real quick. Um, what I meant to try to talk with you about is that this is an international issue. And no matter what is found about this UFO topic, whatever the, the ground level truth is, this is the biggest story in human history. No matter what it is found that UFOs are or represent to humanity, they now call them UAP, no big deal. But I want to throw down for you right now so you understand, you might not be aware, there is a literal disinformation campaign by intelligence agencies to quote unquote, shape the emerging UAP narrative. And they use stigma and sleight of hand, and your government is actually involved in this. Mm. And before today, really your network and you have been kind of unwittingly part of this problem, but as of today, right now, this conversation, your network, we are now going to make sure you are part of the solution because we're gonna be talking about the facts of the UFO and UAP issue. And I, I am personally, aware of the impacts of this last ufo hearing are you personally aware of the repercussions what happened because of that ufo hearing Rosanna? no i'm not and again this is the reason why i wanted to have this discussion because i thought it was so rare and unusual to see uh congress taking the issue of ufos so seriously in fact let's play a clip from uh, some testimony we had if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? Biologics came with some of these recoveries, yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. Jeremy, give our audience a sense if they're not familiar with this, because not everyone has the level of detail insight that you and your followers have into this whole community and into the experts involved, who that person was. Yeah, again, questions are weapons, so thank you for throwing that one to me. So you see on your screen, David Grush, a, a decorated military veteran who has served the United States and intelligence communities 
for decades. And this individual came forward under oath, under oath came forward. And he said, look, I did an investigation. I had access to these special access programs. It was my job to look for misappropriation of funds, which is theft related to UFOs and UAP. And he found them. He interviewed over 40 people that had direct firsthand knowledge of a cover-up of these UFO programs, exploitation, which means reverse engineering. So we got there in front of Congress and for the first time in history had firsthand people, two pilots, fighter pilots, top gun pilots, think Tom Cruise, who, one of whom engaged a UFO for the United States military. And then we had David Grush and David Grush is a whistleblower about the, this theft from our governments financially to cover up this UFO exploitation or reverse engineering thing. And he just said there in that clip, that there were biologics. He means pilots, non-human intelligence. Now, if that is true, whatever you want to label what he said, we need to find out if that is true. So we held this historic congressional hearing. Those three individuals testified under oath. And my mentor in journalism, George Knapp and I, we submitted something for congressional record, two statements. And those statements were an assessment of the situation that has been going on for a long time regarding UFOs and the cover-up. Let's give our audience a bit of a sense then of one of those pilots you're saying. It's almost like a sort of Top Gun uh, person, a real pilot, uh, Ryan Graves. This is what he said. In 2014, I was an F-18 Foxtrot pilot in the Navy Fighter Attack Squadron 11, the Red Rippers. After upgrades were made to our jet's radar systems, we began detecting unknown objects operating in our airspace. During a training mission in Warning Area Whiskey 72, 10 miles off the coast of Virginia Beach, two F-18 Super Hornets were split by a UAP. The object, described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere, came within 50 feet of the lead aircraft and was estimated to be 5 to 15 feet in diameter. Now that's some pretty interesting and serious testimony in my ears uh, when it comes to this. And you talk it there about government cover-up, which is actually one of the sort of uh, topics uh, why we had this hearing. It's been also called, quote, administrative terrorism. You said the UK government is complicit in that. Of course, they're not here to uh, give any kind of counter to that, but we're gonna listen to your point of view on it or the facts that you've gathered. But the thing that sort of pricked my ears up over the last week when I've been receiving all this commentary online was uh, this idea of Don't Look Up, which of course is that movie about people not taking climate change seriously, notably TV shows like this one. Um, and I take climate change very seriously. And off the back of that congressional hearing, took UFOs more seriously as well. So what is it you need to do, you think, to get people to continue to take this topic seriously and see it for the interest that it has? Well, I, I commend you, Rosanna, because this is what exactly we need to do, is bring people up to date with what we know, what we think, and what we're trying to find out. So I really like that you referenced that movie because this is nothing new. People have been coming forward for a long time. There's just now an official process to protect whistleblowers under a Presidential Protection Act. So this is legislation. And that legislation wasn't made out of a void. This is so people can come forward and say, I have been complicit in this cover-up about UFOs, that this has been happening for a long time. It's ubiquitous across the globe. And it presents not only safety of flight issues, but also issues with deployments, issues with nuclear weapons. This is well documented that there has been interference 
from unknowns, from craft of unknown origin that outpace, outmaneuver, and outperform anything we have in our arsenal, as well as the UK arsenal. And how I say and why I say that the UK is, is involved in this is because of the Five Eyes Alliance, because I released with my mentor in journalism, George Knapp, evidence and proof of this from Canada, that there is something called the, the Foreign uh, Technologies Program that is absolutely 100% working on these reverse engineering programs of UAPs. It's called the Foreign Materials Program, the Five Eyes Foreign Materials Program. And this was a, a, a minister, a parliamentary member from Canada that wrote this letter in deep concern. So this is something the UK, the US, the Five Eyes Alliances have all been working on. And this has been going on for a long time. So what has to happen now? is we need to reduce the stigma. No more X-Files, no more tinfoil hats. Again, put on your battle helmets. What's important now is that we find out the ground truth on UFOs. We know UFOs are real. We know there are machines that are far more advanced than what we have. And this is nothing new. Th these have been reported, reported before the Wright brothers went into the, to the sky, before human beings had flight. This has been reported by pilots, by, by military. Some of these accounts, they go back to before there was even a Pentagon. So now we have to have this conversation soberly. We need to discuss the facts because our sensor systems, it's not just pilots anymore telling you this. Mm. The pilots are simply corroborating what's on their shared AI radar. This is something that's being picked up. This is something that we have corroborative visual evidence of, a lot of which I have produced and put to the public through leaks that came to me. They have been verified by our Department of Defense. So everybody, what you can do is start paying attention. Keeping those eyes open and having sober discussion of facts and take a listen to some of those clips in the congressional hearing. They're fascinating. And Jeremy, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for making time to speak to us again. Anytime, I really appreciate you. People got it wrong. You're doing your job. You're reporting the news. And this is the biggest story of all time. Thanks, Jeremy. Well, Uncensored next tonight, I'll be joined by my pack. We're going to be discussing the crackdown on gender-neutral toilets, or whether or not the fight of the century Zuck v. Musk will ever happen, and the ban on poor tipping from French Riviera restaurants. That's all coming up next. Welcome back to Uncensored. Joined in the studio by the Monday Night Pack, socialist and author Grace Blakely joins us again. Talk TV contributor Esther Crack, who also makes her way back into the studio. And comedian James Barr joins us too. Let's dice up some of the stories from today then, shall we? It's a huge range. And let's start with gender, because that's something we never discuss. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gender. <laughs> the gender agenda. <laughs> gender neutral toilet clamp down. Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch, who's also Secretary of State for Business, has been very busy talking about toilets. Today here in the United Kingdom saying women will have their own toilets in all new non-residential buildings in a bid to protect single sex spaces. She said the proposals will ensure every building in England provides separate male and female or unisex facilities and they're going to publish guidance about it. What do you make of this, Grace? Oh, it's so pathetic from the government, isn't it? It's so obviously an attempt to distract from 
just the appalling job it's doing on almost every metric from economic to social to cultural. And it's just a kind of look over here strategy. We're doing something about bathrooms. It's a bid to basically try and get people angry about something that is compared to literally almost anything else that is going on anywhere in our society, anywhere in our environment, anywhere in our economy, just not a big deal. I, I, when, I, when, I, when I read this, I just thought that's quite pathetic. Like, not, not in the sense that I, I disagree with it. You know, I like to have my own space. I, I've always thought that the idea of, you know, opening a pad, knowing that there's a man next to me, mm. I, I just don't like unisex toilets. So for me, it just, it, I've always felt uncomfortable with it. But I just thought the Tories must be so desperate. This is what they need to differentiate themselves. I from agree. The I think it's absolutely pathetic. Like, if they want to protect women, really, they should be doing something about all of the penises walking around number 10 Downing Street. Are <laughs> <laughs> the people attached to them? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you can't, you know, protect against that with gender-neutral bathrooms, can you, James? Look, uh, do you not accept, Grace, that some people are worried about this? They are bothered by it? I think people are... Some people are bothered by it, um, but if you look at the change that there's been over the last, let's say, like, five years, if you ask people five years ago, they said, basically, you know, I'm broadly fine with people doing what they want. I think most people have the same attitude of just, like, do what you want. It doesn't really affect me that much. I don't really think that much about which bathroom I go into. But now... This is my question. But, like, the, the thing is, is that now, after this five years of culture war, people do have more extreme attitudes about it. And that is what culture war agenda issues are supposed to do. They're supposed to push people towards extremes and make us fight over something that doesn't matter mm. so that we don't pay attention to the issues that do. I mean, I do agree. We're not paying enough attention to the things that matter. I just... You know, I, and I get it. Like I, I, like I said, I personally don't like unisex toilets. I despise them. Is that something that I would... Legislate? Would you vote on that basis? I would vote on that basis, exactly. I should qualify. It's not legislation, it's guidance. Um, But, uh, James, is it just the fact that we're all quite young, the four of us here? There are other people in Britain that think differently. Uh, no, I think it's exactly what we've all been discussing, actually. I think we it's happen to be right. right. I think we're all right. right. Uh, yeah. Honestly, like, oh, you know, transphobic hate crimes are up by 52%, I think, or even higher. Um, two LGBT people were stabbed outside of a gay mm. bar in London yeah. this weekend. The stuff that they say is having a real effect on people's lives, and they don't care. That stabbing was particularly concerning. It was in Clapham over the weekend, uh, two gay men near a pub. Um, And let's talk then about this. NHS boss is telling emergency workers to avoid using the words sir or madam. Now, I know we've all kind of said that we're kind of tired of this cultural distraction. Uh, This one does strike me as a little odd. NHS bosses have told 999 operators to avoid calling people sir or madam in case they upset trans patients, because to my limited understanding of not being a trans person, they wouldn't really mind if they were called sir or madam. But you know what's interesting about the story? This was across many emergency uh, services. So it wasn't just like sort of one, you know, NHS emergency service in sort of one county or whatever. It was just across many. So I just thought, wow, that's strange. Do you have not more important things to worry about? I mean, I mean, it's just, that's very strange. Anyway, um, it's ridiculous. I, I don't think, think it is, agree. actually. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's not, because, quite, you know, women's voices, men's voices can get confused anyway. Like, I've been confused for being a woman on the phone. So it's kind of offensive yeah, to everyone. And, you know, for example, Rishi Sunak sounds like a douche. You know, <laughs> we all sound different. I think it's important. I mean, but the thing is, you're calling 999. If you're, if you're in a life-threatening situation, I'm sorry, like, what the person... The person's assumption of your of your gender I just identity can't wrap my head around why anyone's being called sir or madam in a life threatening situation. I'd just be like, hi, I'm in an emergency. <laughs> Can you help me? 
not like yes sir or yes madam it seems like a waste of syllables exactly. in a time I mean, yeah, pressured situation yeah, exactly. let's let's move on to other people which you may also consider to be douchebags uh, james <laughs> elon you. musk and mark oh, yeah. are we allowed okay. to say yeah. yeah i think we can say douchebag nearly okay. i love a douche <laughs> you know what? i mean a douche is actually yeah okay let's maybe not have that conversation mark zuckerberg has hit out elon musk for wasting time over a cage fight saying it's time to move on while musk has hinted it could take place this supposed cage fight in rome's coliseum the two social media tech giants have been floating this idea of a cage fight for ages in my mind it's just all attention seeking was never going to happen it's so stupid like it's just <laughs> so dumb and i mean it would be stupid even if we weren't in this situation now where you know elon musk has effectively ruined twitter like sent you know users numbers through the floor sent advertising revenues through the floor it, you know mark zuckerberg's obviously not a great guy like i saw a tweet the other day ironically enough saying that the worst thing that elon musk has done has made mark zuckerberg by like comparison look like a relatively okay guy mm -hmm. which i think is probably true do you agree with that james yeah i think if mark zuckerberg wants elon to change his mind if he wants to influence him he should just pick up the phone to his old friends at cambridge analytica i'm sure mm -hmm. they could uh, get oh, musk get, in the ring yeah we'll just get him nice. his number look at the end of the day I've always said, with at least with the Elon Musk and Twitter thing, he's too close to it. And now I've seen like I've I've, I've seen too much of the frat boy mentality. Like, oh, I feel like changing this. I'm gonna it's like, treat it like a Game Boy and just tweak mm. it. So I'm like, I've seen too much of Elon Musk to be like. Mm. They well, are basically what, narcissists. But, that is yeah, it. But the, the whole the whole because apparently it's for charity, and apparently the mayor of Rome has ruled out them doing it in the Colosseum because it's it's closed for renovation. So that's not going to be happening. Look, whilst whilst we're in the Mediterranean, I want to get your view on this, Esther. Tipping in restaurants in the Riviera, some of the hot spots, the most exclusive restaurants, they've got secret dossiers on customers who don't leave generous tips. Uh, well, that's too bad. Pay your staff properly. Don't expect customers to subsidise your uh, staff's wages when you don't want to. I mean, if you're in the French Riviera, you can afford a tip, can't you, Grace? Yeah, I find it. How is this going to be enforced? Like, are well, they literally exactly. going to have people's are they going to spit pictures the food? on the wall? Like, it just seems a bit weird. But I mean, yes, obviously people should tip, especially because you know, a lot of uh, restaurants and places will say we'll just pay people the lowest possible wage. Mm. I mean, that James, is generally what. Are you I, a keen honestly, tipper? You know, I love it when guys give me the tip, so I am <laughs> all for tipping. That is all. I didn't hear that. Time I for here that. in the studio <laughs> this Monday on Piers Uncensored. <laughs> Whatever you're up to tonight, make sure it's uncensored. Good night.